Right, ladies and gentlemen, um, we're going to make a start uh, this evening. I think it's probably about half past 11 at night where you are, Raja. Um, it's uh, it's 17.01 uh, by UK time. Um, first of all, a warm welcome to everyone uh, for this, this um, first seminar of um, CTW. Uh, this is a very special seminar because it's a bit of a one-off. Uh, War and Peace at Oxford um, has a, some events uh, during the course of the year, but um, this is the first time uh, that we have had the opportunity to host it, and certainly obviously the first of 2022. Um, this event uh, really brings together several different organisations, um, not just CCW, uh, but also CRIC, uh, the Centre for the Resolution of Intractable Conflicts, uh, led by Lord John Alderdice, um, and indeed Oxpeace as well, um, who I'm delighted that some members of Oxpeace have actually joined us this evening um, for this call. Um, our speaker this evening uh, is actually very distinguished and far too modest often to admit it. Um, a political affairs officer in the United Nations in the Department of Political Affairs and Peacebuilding. He's worked on reconciliation uh, in UNAMA, on electoral affairs in UNAMI. Um, he's been a writer for foreign affairs and the national interest. Uh, famously, he's also a reformer. Um, he is a great believer in the reform of the United Nations, uh, particularly from a young person's point of view, but also in terms of its um, organisational management uh, and cultural change as part of a team that looks at that, particularly in the uh, peace and security uh, area. Um, what uh, Raj has been doing is looking um, specifically when he first came to us at ideas about narratives and how important narratives are in shaping modern conflicts. But this evening, uh, he'll be talking a lot more about the dualities of the character of peace building. So Raja, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm going to send it to you. Over to you. Thank you so much, Rob, uh, for that kind introduction. Uh, you know, I I hope uh, I'm audible to everyone, and uh, I would have very much uh, you know allowed to do this presentation in person, uh, but uh, unfortunately, events did not permit. Uh, but I'm glad that so many of uh, uh, so many colleagues. Uh, at Oxford and uh, perhaps elsewhere are able to uh, join today, uh, thanks to the fact that it's being done remotely. Uh, I <clears throat> would like to just, uh, uh, maybe I hope I can share my screen, if you'll permit. Uh, please tell me if you can uh, see it. Yes, That's coming up I, nicely, I yep, perfect. Yes, excellent. Thank you. You know, uh, when uh, Rob uh, suggested that I speak, I was and and I had I, I came up with this uh, with, with I, the phrasing of this topic, and uh, I told a friend about uh, I, the the topic that I was going to speak on, and this friend said, uh, "Really, the UN, and 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 what exactly does the UN bring to the table?" And my uh, Im impulsive response was. Well, obviously the table. So that I, you know, in fact, is something that has I find myself indoctrinated with. It's something I fervently believe in, that uh, the singular contribution of the United Nations uh, to the cause of peace, 
over the last 75 years has been in bringing the table itself for, for the parallels of peace. But to take a step back and uh, to look at peace itself, you know, the ancient Romans uh, used to believe uh, that the war and peace are uh, Janus-like, and it's uh, perhaps fitting, I thought, uh, since we are in uh, January, uh, to reflect on this, uh, how the Romans uh, believed that we move from war time to peace time. It's a, it's an, it's a pretty simple, uh, uh, it's a transition of sorts, and uh, without attaching too much importance to either. Th this is in, indeed a fact of life. We have, uh, over generations, come to look at uh, war with awe. We see that war brings out the best and uh, also the worst in us. Uh, we have, uh, at the same time, come to believe that war is an anomaly. But what if it is not an anomaly? What if it's peace that is the anomaly? I'm someone who believes strongly that, uh, in fact, um, war, if we look at even the last 20, 75 years in the so-called long peace, there hasn't been a single year when uh, the world has not seen a war in one geography or another. So studying peace is indeed a critical need of our age. And just as victory in war is no accident, victory in peacemaking is not in, not, nor is it an accident, nor is it simple. And this is where the one institution that in which the world, the nations of the world have entrusted their faith, uh, have, have, uh, which you could say embodies our faith uh, that in, in the ideal, that uh, the suffering of one is the suffering of all, and that uh, all of us are bound to try every possible means before taking to violence to uh, resolve uh, disputes. And that uh, we have a duty, in fact, towards uh, the generations to come uh, by pursuing the cause of peace. In fact, uh, the preamble of uh, the United Nations uh, starts with these lines uh, to save we, the peoples of the world, having determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, resolve that. So the scourge of war, and, and for all my uh, uh, esteemed friends in uniform, I think uh, no one bears uh, the brunt of uh, the combat, the, the, the brunt of uh, hostilities more than a soldier. In fact, they would probably be able to testify to it uh, the best. But uh, as a civilian who has also uh, had some experience of living and working in uh, uh, war zones, uh, I can say that war is ugly. War is a nasty, ugly, absolutely horrid business. And uh, the scars that it leaves behind, uh, you know, stay with us for generations to come. But the way we understand war is often one of 
uh, hostilities between uh, countries. In fact, when the UN was set up, the whole, you know, in the shadow of World War II, there was this uh, idea <clears throat> that the UN would act as a platform that would uh, reduce the asymmetry of information between uh, states and that uh, member states would uh, uh, thereafter uh, be bound by the resolutions of the Security Council and, and therefore that we would perhaps be closing the curtains on uh, interstate warfare itself. Now, while that did not happen, uh, as we've seen repeatedly over the last 75 years, what we did see is that the number of interstate wars as well as somewhere their intensity has re reduced. Last year, there wasn't a single major uh, interstate uh, conflict. Uh, I, I hope I'm not uh, mis uh, omitting something, but there wasn't a single significant interstate conflict that happened in 2021. In 2020, we had the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict, but that did. But of course, uh, our newspapers, our TV channels, our, uh, our social media was full of pictures of conflict and uh, suffering. But this, these were coming from civil wars, not so much interstate, but intrastate wars. Now, this distinction is uh, extremely important uh, uh, for the suffering is, of course, the same, but the approaches that we take towards addressing them, uh, towards addressing uh, uh, hostilities and suffering is different when it, is, when it comes to uh, civil wars. And this is why We've seen that uh, today, in fact, 70% uh, of UN peace operations are in fact located in uh, geographies where which which have an environment of civil war. Civil wars are not only more increasing in incidence now, but they're also lasting longer than ever before. An average civil war, uh, David Amitaj, uh, a very respected uh, expert on this, uh, in, in this, uh, on civil wars, uh, he has calculated uh, civil war lasts four times longer than an interstate war. And what we are seeing now is that these civil wars, whether it is Syria, whether it is Yemen, whether it is uh, Mali, Somalia, Central African Republic, these have increasingly become the norm. And what is more uh, uh, distressing is the nature, uh, is the characteristic of uh, these uh, civil wars. We have we're coming to see, we've come to see certain uh, developments in the way these wars were fought, say, in the 90s. Uh, for instance, uh, we had the civil wars in uh, Sierra Leone, Liberia, uh, and, and in the Balkans. Uh, in the 90s. Now compare that with uh, the ones that uh, we see now, uh, Yemen and Somalia, uh, uh, for instance, and we see a, some major changes. It's not just uh, in the fact that we see uh, uh, sometimes the use of air power. Uh, we There was some use of air power in Sri Lanka as well, uh, as we remember. But we see now that uh, even air power uh, has come to acquire, uh, you know, a different meaning altogether with the 
use of uh, unmanned aerial vehicles. We see that uh, the use of uh, irregular forces was always there, but what we're now seeing is a case of the use of, uh, uh, frankly, mercenary groups, uh, such as in uh, Mali and uh, in Libya. We see non-conventional warfare tactics in increased use of IEDs, especially in, uh, for instance, in Mali, Somalia, it ha the, the UN has, uh, in fact, Mali is the single biggest, single deadliest mission for UN peacekeeping anywhere. And we are beginning to see that somewhere the lines between what are perhaps in, in a civil war, uh, civil wars perhaps that, are, that start with an insurgency and then you know acquire a larger dim uh, dimensions. We see that the the lines between the use of terrorist tactics by an insurgent group and terrorist groups actively engaged in a civil war getting blurred. And on top of this, we see a retalification of conflict, which means that any number of actors are, it, it's become uh, the, the cost of uh, uh, undertaking of running a militia, the cost of uh, engaging in conflict has uh, gone down substantially. And all of this is being further uh, fueled through war economies. And the advent of uh, crypto financing, uh, we've seen this in some theaters, uh, along with other forms of illicit economies, has made it increasingly difficult for sanctions and embargoes uh, to work. These uh, mechanisms that the international community had to, uh, to tamp down on conflict seem uh, are increasingly fragile. And last but not least, the increasing phenomenon of uh, proxy wars. Now, proxy wars are uh, perhaps as old as warfare itself. But what we've seen now is that in uh, nations undertaking proxy wars in geographies far beyond their own borders. And this was a capability that was perhaps available once upon a time only to, uh, not too long ago, in fact, only to major powers. But now we see um, regional powers um, uh, and, and uh, in fact, countries uh, which are uh, perhaps, you know, still large scale importers of arms themselves, providing arms to uh, in proxy wars uh, to, uh, to uh, irregular forces in, uh, in a third country. So this has made proxy wars, uh, these proxy wars, in fact, have uh, uh, meant that uh, attaining a consensus or attaining any kind of a conclusion to uh, a conflict by bringing the actors and that, uh, the local actors together has become increasingly difficult. Now, why I mention this is because uh, today, in fact, uh, most of the, as I mentioned, most of uh, the UN's uh, work is, in fact, in uh, 
geographies where we have uh, civil wars, active civil wars. And uh, we see that uh, except in perhaps you know, four peacekeeping operations, the rest are all actually uh, dedicated to uh, looking at addressing conflicts that are actually at uh, various stages. In other words, uh, and, and, and this is that they are either, they're nowhere close to a resolution. They are, in fact, uh, if at all, they are, uh, you know, getting they are getting exacerbated by the day. In 2018, the Secretary General, aware of this, came up with the the concept of sustaining peace. This is something that the UN and World Bank work together. The sustaining peace is a, is a concept which involves the prevention of conflict at various phases whether it is outbreak, the continuation, the escalation or recurrence. Now, if you'll pardon my uh, childlike uh, my scribble across the screen, this arrow which uh, is meant to show how there is no, uh, it's, it's hardly a straight line uh, from out, outbreak to recurrence, as you know. And at each stage, the UN ha has tried to create a, mechanisms to address each phase uh, of a conflict. For instance, uh, the UN now increasingly uses preventive diplomacy, which is uh, a way of, uh, which is often carried out uh, behind the scenes. Uh, as some of you are aware, we, they, there is a standby mediation team, a team of experts, uh, the, at, uh, the, that the Secretary General can tap into at uh, a moment's notice. And uh, at any point in time when we see, and, and I'll come to how we observe and monitor uh, conflicts, uh, whenever we see that there is a conflict in the offing, uh, the standby team is uh, put into, uh, is activated. And um, they work uh, together with the UN uh, Civil Service uh, in uh, in addressing the conflict before it escalates uh, to a point where uh, active hostilities even start. Similarly, when it comes to when uh, conflicts escalate to a, a level where they require uh, active intervention, the, the Secretary General employs a variety of tools that I'll just come to. And when it looks like there are certain conflicts that are perhaps over, but not quite over, because sometimes uh, conflicts, as we know, uh, go through, uh, uh, tend to become chronic. And, uh, they, and it is very important to address the root causes of conflict in the society and to prevent the cycles of conflict uh, from uh, continuing. And in such cases, there is need uh, especially when uh, uh, perhaps international aid is not so forthcoming, there is need for uh, at active investment and to ensure development in to in such a direct in a directed way, so as to prevent the recurrence of conflict. And that's where the UN's Peace Building uh, Commission the, and the Peace Building Support Office, uh, their uh, services are uh, called in. The UN has something called a peace building fund, in fact, 
which uh, addresses uh, which uh, puts in substantive amounts of money uh, through civil society in particular uh, in geographies uh, which are fragile which are just in the process of recovering from uh, a conflict everyone knows about blue helmets the un is uh, almost synonymous when they uh, when anyone talks about uh, the un and um, peace operations the first word that people think about is uh, peacekeeping uh, so that's but so i will not uh, go too much into peacekeeping but i'd like to talk about peacemaking without the peacekeeping peacekeeping is in fact increasingly uh, not the norm uh, the security council over the last 20 years has become increasingly reluctant to authorize uh, large uh, footprint uh, peacekeeping operations. Uh, in fact, uh, I think uh, Mali was, uh, MINUSMA in Mali was probably the last uh, a big uh, uh, a peacekeeping operation uh, uh, with blue helmets uh, that was uh, authorized. Uh, instead, what the UN is, uh, what the Security Council uh, is increasingly inclined to is to do low footprint missions. Now, these low footprint peace operations are, they, of course, you know, they impose, a, uh, they, they cost less, uh, they are easy to mobilize, they are uh, quick to deploy, uh, but uh, they, of course, increase, they, they impose a pretty heavy uh, burden. Uh, uh, in fact, the burden of expectations is probably the heaviest uh, on uh, the UN uh, Secretariat. And the Secretariat, uh, on the instructions of the Secretary General, can deploy a range of, uh, in fact, uh, goes to the sec uh, Secretary General with a range of options uh, to address uh, a conflict. For instance, personal envoys. There are cases where the Security Council, for one reason or another, has not put a conflict on its agenda. Perhaps there is no consensus in the Security Council. Perhaps a conflict is not considered to be at a stage where it uh, merits the Security Council's active uh, interest. And at the same time, it is, a, it, it is perhaps a conflict of concern. And therefore, uh, the Secretary General has the capacity to deploy a personal envoy uh, without uh, needing to go to the going, go to the uh, Security Council. Similarly, there are special advices. Uh, for instance, uh, the Secretary General has a special advisor on Africa uh, who broadly monitors uh, conflicts across Africa and uh, effectively exercises the Secretary General's good offices in building trust between uh, uh, member states across uh, the African continent. Then there are uh, special envoys. Uh, and there is the, there's a high representative uh, as well. For instance, uh, the, there is uh, a high representative for uh, landlocked, uh, least developing and uh, 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 island uh, states. 
who reports to the Secretary General, because this, in the era of climate change, uh, island states, landlocked uh, uh, countries are seen to have, they, they all seen, are all seen to have, uh, they're all making common cause. They even vote together in uh, the General Assembly uh, often. And uh, therefore, uh, there's in fact even uh, something called uh, FOSS, the Forum of, of Small States, uh, countries with populations less than 10 million. Uh, they, they all uh, tend to, in fact, uh, vote together on many issues at the General Assembly. And therefore, a representative who engages with them and keeps the Secretary General informed, uh, there's a high representative. And there are special envoys. The special envoys have increasingly become, uh, uh, have become increasingly common. Uh, there's a special envoy, uh, for instance, for uh, Yemen, uh, and uh, there's a special envoy uh, on uh, Syria. Uh, a special envoy is someone who uh, typically does not have to, uh, he, he, he can only, she can, she focuses exclusively on the peace and security issues related to that particular theater and does not have to uh, say oversee the operations of uh, uh, the UN agencies in the country, such as UNICEF, WHO, uh, UNDP, etc. There are special representatives. These are uh, officials uh, at the under secretary general level who are appointed by the uh, secretary general to to take a, a very broad, all-encompassing view of a conflict. And uh, now these look like bureaucratic titles, but each title actually uh, carries with it a certain weight as well as a certain scope of uh, responsibility. And special representatives also not only have to look at the peace and security dimension, they also have to look at the developmental dimension uh, and, and then look at the intersections of peace and development in a certain uh, uh, country. Uh, so, for instance, uh, in Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, uh, uh, Somalia, uh, we have special representatives. Now, there are special representatives in some countries that also had special political missions, Afghanistan and Iraq being uh, among uh, being uh, classic examples. A special political mission is quite similar to an embassy except that, of course, it does not uh, um, it, uh, represent any particular, any one member state's uh, interests or uh, <clears throat> positions. A special political mission has, uh, you could say, broadly two roles. One, uh, act, in fact, it acts as an interface. Uh, uh, so its two roles, are, two functions are to uh, uh, translate uh, the Security Council's mandate uh, and, and to put it into action. Uh, for instance, uh, the Security Council has a mandate of protection of civilians. Uh, then to end the special political mission uh, in uh, country X will work with uh, all the security actors uh, and perhaps even non-state actors to ensure that civilians are protected in the course of the conflict. At the same time, the special political missions uh, has a function of representing the people of the country to the Security Council. Uh, so whenever there's a Security Council mandate, 
uh, for uh, an SPM, as we say. Uh, there is uh, the Security Council calls for a brief every three months, every six months uh, by the special representative uh, heading the SPM on what is the status, what exactly is going on in the country. Do we see the conflict, uh, especially in the fog of war? It's hard to ascertain whether a conflict's intensity has increased or uh, and who is responsible for, say, you know, much of the violence. So these kind of very nuanced uh, reading uh, readings are actually done uh, through these uh, three monthly or six monthly uh, briefs by the special representatives heading uh, SPMs. <clears throat> In parallel are what we say are uh, special rapporteurs who are typically appointed by the UN Human Rights Council. Uh, which, as you know, is not in the uh, UN Charter. It was not envisioned in the UN Charter, but uh, ever since it was set up uh, <clears throat> in the 90s, it has been a, a, a useful forum. It does not have the UN Human Rights Council does not include the entire membership of the UN. And at the same time, it's become a very important uh, organ of the UN uh, in uh, especially in formulation of international human rights law. And uh, Special rapporteurs are uh, independent, uh, they work independently and they keep the Secretary General informed. There's a special rapporteur, for example, on freedom of speech. There's a special rapporteur on uh, um, uh, freedom for practice of religion. Uh, so uh, there is, uh, so these kind of officials, uh, they look at different dimensions of a conflict. And this is, this is one value that the UN brings to the table in the sense that there, uh, even if individual member states have, let's say, you know, they have minist entire ministries and, you know, looking at, uh, uh, at uh, <coughs> excuse me, addressing various dimensions of a conflict uh, at uh, trying to uh, uh, say, for example, there are countries such as Norway uh, that have active mediation teams uh, and yet not not many uh, are able to summon the kind of bandwidth the UN has in addressing the and all the dimensions to a conflict. Uh, for instance, so they, there are uh, uh, take a, you take any conflict that is raging in the world, any civil war uh, that we uh, see today, and you will see that uh, apart uh, the, from those who are working on the peace and security dimensions there. There is a, a special envoy, uh, a special rapporteur who is working on children in armed conflict. Uh, there is a special envoy who is looking at uh, the uh, role of uh, sexual violence in conflict. And therefore, uh, this ensures that no voices are lost uh, and, and that every uh, the, the voice of the people in the conflict consistently uh, makes it, uh, it is consistently heard by the international community. Now, that said, the challenges to peace are indeed uh, manifold and they are uh, multiplying as we speak. <coughs> Terrorism, we already uh, I'd mentioned, and also, but violent extremism. And many people, uh, in fact, uh, talk of these two terms uh, perhaps uh, uh, together. In fact, even um, uh, the 
UN's global counterterrorism strategy speaks of violent extremism conducive to terrorism. But I, I separate these for a reason, because what we're seeing today is, is the rise of intolerance, which perhaps falls short of actively procuring explosives and wanting to uh, uh, attack people who disagree with you, but yet which is no less virulent and no less dangerous to our societies. Whether it is right-wing extremism, whether it is uh, the, now we're even uh, the, talking about, uh, there is talk of uh, uh, intolerance on the grounds of, uh, uh, for on for environmental uh, on the basis of environmental arguments there is uh, and we have become a world community where intolerance has found it quite easy to proliferate and perhaps it is uh, the internet to blame perhaps it is uh, um, just the zeitgeist of our times but perhaps it's it, it is a, it's just it is a reality that uh, uh, we are uh, less willing uh, to uh, to even look into the arguments of those that we disagree with. But violent extremism in particular has created uh, uh, schisms in society. And that's where the UN has been working on social cohesion programming. Uh, this means that especially where you have majoritarianism on the rise, for instance, you cannot address uh, the, it as an issue of uh, anti-terrorism. Uh, if you have a majority uh, believing that a minority is uh, uh, is dominating and therefore that, or that if there are majority impulses in a society, uh, or if there is an apartheid-like environment uh, be, uh, developing, then in such cases, what you need is uh, social cohesion uh, programming. Uh, it's again something uh, that sounds very UNEs when we put it, but at the grassroots level, uh, a lot of work has been done by the UN in fostering trust between communities, in creating champions, individuals who can act as agents uh, of uh, harmony uh, within their community, who can uh, assure the members of their community uh, that, uh, you know, let's give the benefit of doubt. Let's uh, take a step back. Let's act with empathy towards uh, these, uh, towards the other communities. So, similarly, we have uh, this issue of <clears throat> uh, information warfare we have um, that uh, it goes without saying fake news now this is where uh, the un has in fact <clears throat> un is trying to find solutions to this issue uh, to this challenge i don't think we're uh, yet there but uh, uh, we are in fact the secretary general tweeted uh, just last week uh, about any time you uh, see a, a piece of news ask who is it by, where is it from, uh, what could be the intent. So in other words, to critically reason with every, uh, in the case of every a bit of uh, news or information uh, that, uh, <clears throat> that we come across. And this is something that we are trying to address through uh, education, uh, through, for instance, uh, through UNESCO, 
and 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 also uh, through uh, the UN's own strategic communications uh, apparatus. Climate security. It's not uh, something that is on which there is a, a consensus whether climate change is uh, a peace and security issue. Well, many people would say yes. Uh, the desertification of the Lake Chad Basin. In fact, there's a there's a UN fund for uh, for specifically on this and uh, to which many member states have contributed and the desertification of Lake Chad uh, has indeed given rise to uh, enormous instability in West Africa and to waves of migration to uh, towards Europe. Uh, and yet uh, there is a fear among some member states that uh, climate uh, change is would it be used uh, perhaps or misused um, say such a in a manner similar to say right to right to protect uh, in order uh, to uh, justify interventions uh, in in other member states. So clearly there is a quite a huge uh, uh, gap. There is a lot of uh, mistrust on uh, uh, on this issue and even as we are face to face with the threat of climate change. Uh, there is a very recently the Security Council uh, did not find consensus in including climate change uh, on the agenda of the Security Council. So the UN civil service for its uh, on its part um, is however studying this dimension actively and uh, I personally have seen how climate change has you know, contributed to a rise in uh, for instance uh, intertribal conflict in the south of Iraq uh, and, uh, and and many parts of the Middle East in particular. Cybersecurity is an issue that is uh, that uh, for, matters a lot for member states. Uh, in the UN, we like there's a, there's often. Uh, please don't quote me on this, but uh, we like to believe that you know it's part of being in you know an open society. Uh, the, the price you pay for it uh, is that um, it, it's very hard to lock information up. Uh, and yet uh, cybersecurity uh, and the toll that it can take uh, on uh, uh, societies is something the UN is looking into. Uh, the, the Secretary General has a, a new envoy on data, uh, a special envoy for uh, and, a, and a data strategy and whose role among whose mandate is also to look into uh, the dimensions uh, of um, uh, cybersecurity. Now, <clears throat> one of the key issues is that uh, we see today is rising inequality. Inequality is perhaps at the bottom of most of the conflict uh, in the world. It has been so for centuries. But uh, for the UN, uh, this means that it, you cannot simply fix a conflict by, uh, uh, you know, merely bringing, you know, parties to uh, the leaders of say uh, political parties together uh, and seating them at a table and getting an agreement signed. In fact, you need to look at, you know, much deeper and that's where we are now actively into political economy monitoring. Uh, for instance, we have uh, a, a group that looks at uh, oil, the prices of oil, the, the price of oil and uh, what uh, that says we are actively monitoring the price of oil uh, and uh, to see what impact it would make um, 
on my countries that are both uh, you know major producers as well as major consumers the uh, as part of the secretary general's reforms uh, in 2019 a role of chief economic advisor was created the under secretary general for economic and social affairs is going to be called as chief economic advisor to the secretary general and this means that besides the world bank and the imf the, the secretary general has direct access to, uh, to 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 forecasting in a way of uh, where the global political economic uh, you know trends are going and quite important is the creation of the new resident coordinator system for the longest time without a security council mandate it's it was impossible for the un and justifiably so for reasons of sovereignty to even study what is happening in a country yes there is some kind of passive monitoring but but not more than that and it's very hard especially to communicate uh, to a government uh, to uh, to say that you know perhaps uh, the government may want to reconsider a certain uh, you know move or a certain maybe a certain piece of legislation and and so on now without uh, actually intervening or uh, in any country's democratic processes the secretary general envisioned the creation of the resident coordinator system the resident coordinator is a role that has existed for a while but now it has come in a in 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 a in a very uh, empowered uh, uh, as an empowered role and a resident coordinator in about 40 odd countries there's a un resident coordinator who sits at the top of the pyramid of all the un institutions in the country all the un agencies and this resident coordinator reports directly to secretary general so effectively it's the closest thing that the un would have, would come to have uh, uh, to having an ambassador in each country now of course it's not there in every country in the world but in about 40 odd countries uh, where there is uh, uh, there is increasing fragility or perhaps uh, there is some kind of uh, there are cycles of conflict there is this rc system exists um, and along with the the, RC, the each of the resident coordinators has a peace and development advisor and this is also there in 40 odd countries who who looks at the uh, who looks at not just about uh, very broadly about how uh, the peace and security in the country is, but also about how the developmental trends in the country are likely to affect uh, uh, the the peace and security situation. And uh, these peace and uh, development advisors, in some cases, they're also peace and development specialists who advise the resident coordinators, thus act as, uh, quite frankly, as eyes and ears. Uh, you know, and, and in some cases, hands for uh, uh, the Secretary General uh, to uh, to address uh, conflicts before they even erupt. And irregular responses by states to non-conventional threats are something that that that's a major concern for uh, for the UN today. This means the setting up of, for instance, of uh, militias, uh, which uh, perhaps uh, seem to work in the short term, but in the medium term, they become a problem in themselves. So this is an area where the UN's uh, DDR and SSR, as we call them, disarmament, demobilization, reintegration, and uh, security sector reform. These two mechanisms, which were 
in in their heyday in the 90s were actively used to demobilize uh, for instance rebel groups in west africa and so on uh, today we are having to uh, you know completely uh, look at them you know overhaul them reequip them so that we address these the issue of these uh, militias so that we also uh, are able to make these functions uh, work in an environment where you have active terrorist groups so we have a new acronym that we are dealing with uh, which are uh, which is uh, uh, armed uh, uh, armed groups that are classified as terrorist actors so it's, it's, it's a complicated acronym but uh, it's essentially uh, in, a, in a, how do we deal for instance with al shabab uh, and uh, how, how do we make sure that uh, groups that are sanctioned that are part of un sanctions list and yet uh, which are uh, perhaps active insurgent act, uh, active insurgents uh, insurgent groups in a country how do we deal with them how do we demobilize them these are issues that the un is increasingly uh, concerned about and sees to it and of course the, the most important uh, uh, i would say uh you could say the epoch in uh, of uh, un thinking about technology has now dawned and that uh, it's indeed the emphasis on innovation in the un now is uh, is quite high and this is not just so much about the because it, it uh, the un has come from uh, doc, the doctor strange love era to perhaps uh, uh, the steve jobs era but it's actually uh, the it's a recognition of the fact that uh, peacemaking today requires uh, the proactive use of uh, technology uh, and in ways that we did not imagine before and that's where whether it's artificial intelligence and use of machine learning uh, to, uh, to i'll give you one example the we as uh, about uh, one year ago uh, when we were looking at uh, mosul and we wanted the uh, after the liberation of mosul we wanted security council uh, to to uh, vote on resolutions for the reconstruction of uh, the city and uh, one of our teams uh, some of our colleagues went to mosul and uh, they they videoed the place and basically we created a virtual reality program uh, sorry an, an, an augmented reality program for um, uh the the members of the security council so that they could see what it feels like uh for an average citizen in the city and uh, this has these kind of innovations have uh, made significant difference uh, we uh, uh, similarly when it comes to elections in which the un plays a key role in many countries uh the un is uh, called upon uh, sometimes to uh, to monitor elections but quite off but almost uh, always to support uh, through technical assistance to support uh, a member states electoral commissions um, in these kind of cases uh, it's uh, we are increasingly using technology uh, to make sure that the processes are as fair and free as possible whether it is through setting up of uh, a, a, a network called uh, ubuntu in uh, kenya uh after the during elections in 2010 which allowed for uh, people to report on electoral malpractices in almost in uh, real time 
Now, similarly, in uh, uh, behavioral insights, uh, when it comes to preventing violent extremism, uh, the uh, the UN uh, the UN Office of Counterterrorism is using uh, has in fact set up a center in uh, Doha uh, to uh, uh, to study uh, how uh, behavior uh, uh, behavioral insights what they may say uh, uh, when it comes to violent extremism, uh, predictive analytics and foresight. Uh, all of this is, and uh, the as well as futures uh, insight. This is all part of uh, our efforts to improve the early warning uh, for uh, UN senior management. Uh, we have various mechanisms uh, called risk management reviews uh, through which uh, all of uh, UN um, uh, insights uh, on a certain region of the world are, uh, are they, they are uh, a combined uh, uh, and uh, filtered and analyzed. And uh, while it's uh, it's quite a, a mammoth process, uh, the insights are quite valuable. And uh, these this uh, I believe has helped us. Uh, in in uh, you know in taking a more scientific approach to peacemaking, so that when a special envoys or special president of the of the Secretary General go now uh, and they sit with uh, a, uh, activists in a in a conflict, they're not uh, you know working merely on the basis of what has been told to them in the previous meeting or what's reported on the media, but they're actually going armed with a wealth of uh, information and insight. Uh, I would uh, uh, like to leave the rest for question and answer, but uh, I hope this has given you a little bit of uh, uh, insight into how uh, the UN is keeping pace with uh, changing uh, characteristics. As warfare has changed, uh, so too has uh, uh, the need, uh, so, so too has peacemaking and uh, the UN has increasingly come to uh, see this and is trying to keep pace uh, with these uh, changes in uh, peacemaking. Thank you. Roger, um, superb. Um, it's always nice uh, that you've uh, ended by bringing together both um, matters to do with peacemaking, but with also the character of conflict, because um, there was an old joke made by a peace mediator that those studying peace are really actually having to study war and those who are the so-called war studies people are always interested in peace, and I think that's broadly um, correct.